For those of you who have been with us any significant amount of time, you know that we have our fair share of technical issues with our microphones and our speakers, but we are light years ahead of where we used to be with these, these wireless headsets, right? Not like the pastor that I read about earlier this week who was wired for sound with one of those old-fashioned lapel mics, you know, the kind you clip to the front of your collar that has the cord that drags down behind. And as he preached, he, he moved around back and forth pretty quickly, jerking that mic cord from side to side, but he could only get so far before the cable would jerk him to a stop. And he kept that up until he finally got wound up in the cord and nearly fell into the front row. (laughs) At which point a little girl in the third pew back leaned forward to her mother and whispered, Mommy, if he gets loose, will he hurt us? And, and that question may possibly have been on the minds of the first century worshipers in the temple at Jerusalem on a particular day that Jesus made what may be considered a pretty dramatic entrance by church standards. And we're going to look at that today uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. So hear now the words of the true and living God. John writes, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. Did that story surprise you a little bit? You know, we don't often imagine Jesus as the lash out in anger type of guy, do we? We don't like to think of God as as being angry, do we? And I think that if you polled the general population about why they don't go to church anymore, it's because too many people have been beaten up by the message that God is an angry God who wants to smite everyone for their sins if they step the least little bit out of line. And we don't really like that idea of God. We like the the idea of the God of grace and, and love and forgiveness. And you know, the church throughout history has tended to swing from one extreme to the other regarding God's wrath and his mercy and that's really a shame because the truth is there's a balance to be had in fact that's really one of the things that i love about our reformed faith is that our theology understands that god is on both sides of the equation because you know god works through law and he works through gospel he works through human responsibility and divine sovereignty and he works through his attributes of righteous judgment and relentless love 
But you know, in today's world, the doctrine of God's judgment and of the wrath of God has, has really fallen on hard times. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Mostly because any concept of God's wrath upsets our modern sentiments. It's, it's too disconcerting. It's too intolerant. And when we live in a day where we have as a society set ourselves up as the judge and put God's character on trial. Like when our culture asks, how can the concept of hell be just? Or why would a loving God command the Israelites in the Old Testament to destroy the Canaanites? Or how about if God is all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? Whether it's natural disasters, economic hardships, or, or the horror of an, yet another mass school shooting like we've seen. And the fact that so many people struggle with these questions, and many more like them, means it's more important than ever to have right thinking. To have right thinking when it comes to the doctrine of God's righteous anger and what it means for us today. Because, you know, getting angry isn't always a bad thing. It's what you do with that anger that can make it wrong. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, but do not sin. You know, anger is what psychologists call a secondary emotion. It's kind of like pain in that way. You know, pain can be a good thing because it alerts us to the fact that there's an injury or there's something not right with our body. You know, and anger is like that. It's a, an internal alarm that tells us something's not quite right. It's a sign that someone or something we care about has been violated. You know, parents and grandparents have that kind of internal sensor for their kids, don't they? Just let somebody mess with somebody else's kid or grandkid and you'll find out how quickly mama bear shows up, <laughs> right? But why did Jesus get so angry when he came into the temple in today's text? Well, we need to talk about the temple for just a minute so you get the idea because as we read, the festival of the Passover is at hand. So Jesus went to the temple and inside there to worship. So remember, the temple was designed to be that place that represents the presence of God, that contained the holy of holies, the throne of the great king, the place where only the high priest could enter and then just once a year. That was in the center. And then it had courtyards around it and then separate courtyards for Jewish men and for Gentile believers and for women. It was a place of holiness and purity. Because you see, God knew that we as finite human beings needed something solid to hold on to in order to grasp the infinite God. And the temple was that place. It was holy ground. It was the place where people were supposed to come to set their eyes on God and to put their priorities in order. It was a place they were to come to realize that they were blessed and to be a blessing to others. But you know, when Jesus shows up, when Jesus enters the temple that day, he found people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and there were tables with money changers and chaos everywhere. Now, just like every other heresy and error that comes into the church, it didn't happen overnight. Right? We'd be prepared for that. We could see that kind of thing coming from miles away, but what trips up God's people every time are the subtle things that creep in bit by bit, generation by generation. Because like, you see, originally... The idea of providing animals locally for the Passover sacrifice was a good thing. If you lived far away and had to travel a long distance to reach Jerusalem for the festival, it's much more convenient to buy what you needed when you get there, right? It's also a service for people whose animals may have died or been stolen on the way. Now, if you think about it too, when the temple officers 
needed to collect the funds that God commanded the people to tithe. They rightly wanted only pure silver and gold coins, and so they were careful to regulate their currency. And they accepted, you know, kind of like a store, being careful not to take in counterfeit bills. But slowly all of these things evolved, or or devolved, I guess I should say, because bit by bit the animal market moved from its place across from the temple into the temple itself. Slowly the natural laws of supply and demand went from expecting a healthy profit to extracting exorbitant extortion. Until as one commentator, one pilgrim of that time wrote that the doves for sale inside the temple, the ones that the priest approved of for sacrifice, sold for 50 times more than those available in any local village market. And don't forget, you needed the right kind of money to buy them. No ordinary coins would do, especially if they had graven images imprinted on them. But in the interest of public service, the money changers at the temple would be only too happy to exchange your worldly coins for their sanctified ones. And it would only cost you a surcharge of 6% if you didn't want any change back. If you wanted change back, that would have to be reduced by another 6%. That's why Jesus said in Matthew's account of this event, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus was angry because the sellers of the animals were selling dishonestly. The money changers were changing money dishonestly, knowing that people had nowhere else to go to get what they needed. It's a pretty clever system the religious leaders figured out, wasn't it? But beyond the racketeering aspect of it, what they were doing, they were actually doing, was committing idolatry in the temple of God. See, Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See, Paul tells his readers that they were to put away those earthly sinful behaviors in which they had once lived, one of which he mentions is covetousness. That's a word we don't hear too much anymore, do you? You ever hear that on an evening newscast? But we definitely see it in action, right? So what is covetousness? Well, just very simply, it describes something that another person has and you believe that you deserve it more. Right, now, covetous on, let's say, a micro scale would be like me saying, I think I should have Bill Gates' money instead of him because I could spend it better. <laughs> and I'm willing to try any time he'll let me. <laughs> but now, on a larger scale, it's when any particular social group you want to name goes from rightly expecting equal opportunities in this world to demanding that everyone have equal outcome regardless of their efforts. Right? Covetousness is more than greed which says, I deserve this. Covetousness goes beyond that to say, I deserve this more than you. All right, don't forget, money and possessions in themselves aren't evil, but if they're obtained illegally and if they consume all of our thoughts and actions, then they take the place in the human heart that's reserved for God alone. And that becomes idolatry. And why is that? Because they replace God as our supreme delight with material things. When we put things in specifically other people's things in the place of God, then those things become more dear to us than God himself. That's what was happening in the temple that day. The animal sellers and the money changers had a legitimate role to play in helping the people to worship, but they had perverted their place with idolatry, with covetousness, with robbery. They weren't giving people the animals that they were charging them for. 
and that their money was worth, and so they were stealing from them and breaking at least three of God's direct commandments right on his front doorstep. They're desecrating the temple and profaning the holy name of God in his rightful worship. That's why Jesus was so angry. And now some people might say, well, Jesus might have had a right to be angry, but come on. I mean, did he have to react as severely as he did? I mean, overthrowing tables, chasing out salespeople, driving the animals out with a whip? The answer is yes. Jesus did have a right to act in anger the way he did because Jesus was defending the holiness, the hallowedness of his Father's name. Jesus was making it clear that the temple was to be kept holy and set apart for God, which is something that we have definitely lost as a nation and as a culture and sometimes, sadly, even as a church. I love to tell that story that uh, Mike Bowman tells about shopping for a church before he ended up here. And he said in one of the last places he attended, one of the worship leaders came out onto the stage to pray and started out by looking up and said, Hey, God. Hey, God. Are you kidding me? That person was addressing the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, like he was just the guy next door. And don't get me wrong, of course, there's that great privilege we have of intimacy with our father, but we can at the same time never forget the perfection and the otherness of our God and the gravity of our disobedience. In a book that I would recommend to you called The Holiness of God by Dr. R.C. Sproul, he writes, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself and by it we are saying, God, my judgment is better than yours. God, your authority does not apply to me. God, I am above your jurisdiction. And in today's text, we see Jesus zealously, or maybe I should say even jealously, protecting his Father's honor. And when the disciples saw that, when they saw the tables toppled and the coins scattered and flocks of birds being released and tradesmen scrambled to gather everything up, they remembered that David prophesied in Psalm 69.9. He wrote, zeal for your house will consume me. But what's zeal? That's another word you don't hear very often, right? Zeal is intense enthusiasm or devotion. It's, it's being totally committed, being sold out, totally obsessed with someone or something, just like Jesus was intensely devoted to the temple and to its holiness. Just like Jesus was totally committed to the pure worship of God and he was completely sold out and wholeheartedly devoted to his Father and the holiness of his Father's name. But, you know, when we come to that passage, we have to ask ourselves, what are we zealous about? What are we zealous about? For what or whom would you cross an ocean or a desert or climb a mountain? For what or whom would you risk everything that you are and everything that you have? Is there anyone or anything that fits that bill? What are you zealous about today? What would you make a scene over or who would you offend for the honor of God? You know, I've seen people get more upset over someone slamming their favorite sports team than they would ever get about someone making Christ's name into a curse word. But Jesus was zealous to preserve and draw attention to the holiness of God's name, and we have been called to do the same thing. 
not by judging other people, not by going around hitting people over the heads with our Bibles, not by pretending that we're better than we are, but just by a pure love of the truth of Jesus Christ and His Word. You know, that's one of the things I've come to love about the writings of men like Martin Luther. You know, if you were here for Reformation Sunday, you'll remember that this year marks the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, traditionally pegged to October 31st, 1517, the day that Luther posted that 95 thesis to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. And it sparked kind of a church house cleaning of its own, didn't it? So that within just a few months, a religious revolution began to unfold, a revolution bet on change, and more properly on reform, on ending corruption and returning Christianity to its purest forms. And Luther was deadly serious about it, not for his own glory, but for God's. And so in 1521, he wrote, I have said more than once that anyone may attack my person in any way he pleases. I do not pretend to be an angel, but I let no one attack my teaching without counterattack, since I know that it is not mine, but God's. And because of that, many of the arguments that he made with those that opposed his reforms were not just heated, but were white hot, incandescent. And knowing how much he was shaped by St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, it's easy to imagine him identifying personally with the passage that says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, Luther was convinced of God's call and his hand in the Reformation, and so his anger had an urgency about it. It served a purpose. The church of his day was, was rife with abuse and corruption. Nobody denied it then, and hardly anybody denies it now. And his righteous anger drove him to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and cling to Christ alone. And so here we are, half a millennium after Luther and two after Christ. And what do we make of all this today? What's the point of me sharing all of this with you? Well, plenty, I think. Kind of like as Luther's namesake, Dr. Martin Luther King, would observe in the 20th century, the lack of anger is a failure of nerve when it leads to apathy. And he said in the words of Edmund Burke, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing. Or he could have said for good men not to get angry. And no, I'm not talking about going out and becoming as obnoxious as we possibly can be. But we need to reclaim our Christian heritage and we need to do it fast. Right? We need more real men who just really love Jesus. Are you out there, guys? Guys, for us, that means we need to shake off that cultural stereotype that Christian men are just nice little harmless pushovers without the courage to stand up against real evil or to teach the unequivocal truth with authority and to speak the truth in the face of political correctness because the honor of God's house is at stake. And I don't mean just inside these four walls. Remember we read the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing if God gave you Authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What, they exclaimed? It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. You see what happened there? Jesus said, I am the temple. I am the place where God meets creation, where God is with us. That's why John started out his gospel by saying the word became flesh and tabernacled with us and dwelt with us. He pitched his tent with us. 
But that presence of God is not about a building. It's not about the church's power or money or success. The presence of God with us is the fact that Jesus emptied himself of all of those things and became a servant. He let himself be ridiculed and abused and misunderstood and ultimately crucified so that we might have life. So that God, by his spirit, could be with us as we gather around his body and blood at the table today. And so he could send us in the world to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And as a church, as a body of Christ, we are called to love the world the way God loves the world. We're called to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. To get mad when people are hurt and when the, the weak and the poor and the outcast are abused. But also to be in love with the sacrifice of God's mercy. And all of those things kind of pull together in the person and the work of Christ on the cross. And I want to close out this message before we go to the table by sharing with you just a short reading from Scottish theologian James Stewart. I shared it before with you, but I never get tired of reading it, and I think it sums up the message uh, perfectly. He wrote, Jesus was the weakest and lowliness of the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him. Little ones were nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they would ever escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. And Stuart closes by saying, there is nothing in history like the union of contrast which confront us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus, then, is the mystery of divine personality. That divine personality, that divine presence with us in all that it means, in his righteous judgment and his relentless love presented for us here today at the Lord's table for all that are his. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy. You answer sin with grace, you repair the broken, you strengthen the weak, pardon the repentant, all through the perfect life and sinless death of your Son, whose intentional sacrifice we commemorate today through the preaching of your word and the right administration of your sacraments. And gracious God, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.